Sir, uh, how uh, when you were growing, is there any special memory or any time you realize that now you realize that I had this aspiration to become or go in the spiritual path? There is something interesting related to your life from your childhood which you want us to know. First of all, I was a studious child. So, a very ordinary and common source, such as the textbooks, the school textbooks, they held a lot of meaning for me. So I would try to go deep into what the books wanted to tell me. So obviously there was science, there was maths, there were the languages. But then there were also social studies and history and civics. So those introductions were quite uh, significant to me. And then, uh, you see, I was born in 1978. So at the age of five or six, I got to read about Operation Blue Star. It was all over the papers. And I was in Rudrapur, Terai at that time. So the ripples from Delhi and Punjab would reach that place as well. My father was an avid reader, he still is. So he would read about Bhindrawale and I was curious, I would ask him. Then there was the Blue Star thing and Mrs. Gandhi's subsequent assassination. And I was just six and I still have a vivid memory of the entire nation hmm? mourning the loss. And we saw the funeral on the TV. And on, and on the impressionable mind of a six-year-old, all those things had uh, quite an impact. And when I say of the TV, just before that thing happened, I also saw Rakesh Sharma, hmm? the first Indian going to space. And then Rajiv Gandhi came over. And then there was the Shahbanu case. 
and then it resulted into the entire Ayodhya movement. Before 92, there was 90 and uh, I was in Lucknow at that time. And video cassettes of the police firing that happened upon the Karsevaks in Ayodhya. They were being circulated, the cassettes. And one of the cassettes, it was a newsreel, it reached uh, my home as well. And the atmosphere was all quite charged up. We looked at it and I had several questions. And Lucknow, as you know, is very close to Fatabad and Ayodhya. And then in 92, there would be um, conscious blaring through the night and processions and shutdowns. And then between 90 and 92, there was the Mandal Commission report that was implemented by uh, VP Singh's government. And again, being in Lucknow, I saw and experienced firsthand the entire aftermath. So the first self-emulation had taken place in Lucknow. And I was, what, 12 or 13 at that time. So all that made quite a mark. And then there were events on the international front as well, the disintegration of USSR. Just before that, uh, I remember how Gorbachev had tried to come up with his glass nose and how the whole thing didn't quite work out. And there used to be discussions at home. And I would read a lot, magazines, newspapers, whatever I could lay my hand on. And then there was the Gulf War. And then the Skirt and the Patriot became household names. And again, that was seen for the first time, almost live on TV. So these were the things, and if you see that all this was happening before I was even 15. Yeah. Hmm? And the impact of Gulf War on India was that the Indian foreign reserves, uh, they, they depleted badly. Obviously, that also had to do with uh, the policies of the previous governments, especially Rajiv Gandhi's government for um, a great GDP push. So there were uh, reasons behind that. But then what Saddam Hussein did in Kuwait precipitated that. So I was, uh, I was curious and I would ask and I would try to understand what all these things are. Most importantly, because all these things were happening in different directions, almost in different dimensions, it impelled me to look at the cross-linkages. 
how internal happenings affect external happenings, how something in the field of religion has an impact on the economy and vice versa. You know, it was a mishmash, entire thing happening together. You started observing these points, started joining those, those dots yes. that this happened spiritually or internally, the result is uh, here. Uh, you see, the, my father is quite a well-read person and we had a, a significantly rich library at home. And I like to read from my childhood. I mean, everything. Okay. A huge collection of comic strips, and then uh, children's stuff like uh, Children's Knowledge Bank. Okay. Or the usual fair, you know, Parag, Nandan. Okay. All those things. Chacha Chaudhary. Ah. So I was reading all the time, all the time I was reading. I was not so much of a TV boy. Okay. So I got into classical literature as well as uh, spiritual and wisdom literature at quite an early age. And I took to it very smoothly and spontaneously. I was reading classics and uh, there was hardly a book in my father's library that I, I didn't lay my hands on. Obviously, I could not comprehend everything. Even the Upanishads I had uh, read, the major ones, before I was 10. So, in spite of not comprehending everything, something would make sense, something would get connected to something else. Uh, and then there were the great writers and novelists and poets and poems, especially I would love in Hindi. And uh, one book that I specifically remember as being significant for me was The, the Wonder That Was India. Basham. So, for a child of uh, my age, it was quite a thick volume. <laughs> but uh, uh, I just poured over it and I loved the book. It, it really um, uh, opened to me the gates of India's history. And what helped me was that uh, History was also a subject in the school curriculum. So some of that was getting connected to what I was being taught in the classroom. Hmm? And it also gave a sense of pride to know far beyond what was being taught in the classroom. Hmm? As a kid, you love all those things. The teacher is saying something and you already know that and you also know plus and minus. So. All those things were happening. And those were, you see, really tumultuous years. I went to Kashmir in 1988. And then 89, the insurgency turned red. Uh, mine would probably have been the last batch of tourists that visited the valley. Hmm? 
Kashmiri Pandits, they fled in 89 or 90. And along with that was the Khalistan movement. I was seeing all that. Right. So events on the social front, on the religious front, on the political front, on the economic front, international geopolitics, history, religion, spirituality, they were all coming together and I was absorbing it and analyzing it well, as much as I could do at that age and uh, trying to make sense of it. And some pictures, some patterns kept emerging. And uh, thankfully, I had my father at home to, to just throw questions at him. I would keep asking, I would keep asking. I just wanted to know, do you remember any pictures or patterns which you observed that time? Like this is happening, like this is a pattern. You see, when the USSR disintegrated, I asked my father, I said, I mean, there has been no war. We have been talking so much of the Cold War. And the Cold War used to be such a threat in the 80s. Obviously, it was a threat even before that, but 80s was when I was there to perceive the threat. And the kids would all be talking about it and these things. So I said, the, there, there has not been even a single bullet fired, not a single missile fired. We kept talking of the Armageddon. We said so many nuclear-tipped missiles would be fired from this side and then from that side. None of that happened. And the USSR just broke down. So my father, he quipped, he said, uh, you know, when, when, when the center becomes weak, then everything around it just uh, falls into pieces. Hmm? I don't know whether he said that intentionally or not. But uh, I just fell silent after hearing that. The thing about the center and all the peripheral pieces around it. Hmm? It's another matter that uh, around 10 years later, I read a novel by Chenu Achibe, Things Fall Apart. And this was a line there, hmm? a similar line, you know, things fall apart, the center does not hold, the center does not hold, things fall apart. But I had uh, heard first of this when the USSR disintegrated and it was very, very significant for me, that observation, how pithily he had summed up the entire thing in that one sentence. He said, you do not need any external enemy. The day Moscow became weak, it was obvious that all uh, the uh, loosely connected states would fall apart. And so they did. And you know how, how interesting it was to see the map of the world changing? Hmm? So there was the giant USSR and suddenly there was no USSR. 
and half a dozen new states had come up of who states with new names ukraine what is ukraine azerbaijan kazakhstan and these were you know fantastic sounding names as well and i would want to know about it and and uh, kids would discuss these things there was no internet there was no mobile so some of the curious kids uh, found this as uh, as an important pastime and they would be talking about these things and even information was not as readily available as it is today we had to wait for the next day's newspaper and hope that there would be a feature or an op-ed or a news article which would not necessarily be there so those were interesting times so as a youth when you were in college i read somewhere that you were and i know that you have been to iit and iim and you were thinking of or i don't know if it is right information or wrong that you were also planning to go to raw and that direction and suddenly you went to the path of spirituality so where was the turning point what happened to you in your thought process or have you realized something which we would like to know about there was no turning point at all no turning point at all it has been a gradual progression you see i loved knowledge hmm? that's what made me do well in my uh, academics that's what took me to iit and iim obviously there were some other reasons as well but primarily it was because uh, i liked to know and understand and these things and i uh, never even in my school days visualized myself as somebody uh, who is worldly successful in terms of having a lot of money or a lot of uh, power or fame or anything i was always more concerned about the big picture what's happening uh, all around me and the relation of the big macro picture to the most fundamental micro entity man hmm? how is the whole thing moving and uh, how is how is it impacting man and how is it not merely impacting man how is man responsible for what is happening at the macro level hmm? the the interdependence the two way traffic so i wanted to get into the civil services and that too because uh, to my mind that was probably the most effective way of uh, bringing about a macro change but then as i went into the process of preparing for civil services um, uh, the upsc general uh, studies syllabus is wonderful hmm? 
and I went deeper into the constitution and how India's modern history has been and how the world has shaped up and what has been the fate of bureaucratic systems. All these things, uh, the, the uh, candidates are supposed to study. I too did that. It started becoming clear to me in the process of preparing for civil services that uh, that which I want to do cannot be best done through the bureaucratic route. What was that you wanted to do? I was not very clear about it. But you were clear, I don't want to do this. Yes. Of a few things I was clear that this is what I see happening all around me and I find it all quite pointless. Pointless and foolish. I don't want to get into this. What was it that needed to be done? I neither knew nor was very curious to know. I was quite patient in that regard. I wanted to let the whole thing gradually emerge on its own. I didn't know. Hmm? And it couldn't have been known because it was not something that could be planned in advance or could be determined by way of consultation with others. So I was uh, quite patient with it. I allowed life to slowly reveal it to me. So you never felt like during that time also, there are people who with wisdom, like Guru, Acharyaji that time also, must be some people around who are revered as a spiritual teacher. You never felt that some guidance can be taken from there? No, that didn't happen because uh, I had the books. And the books never uh, let me feel that uh, additional guidance was needed. And then I had my father at home. So there was really no such uh, query that was remaining unanswered. Hmm? So that didn't happen. Additionally, you see, I had a great respect for the greats over the course of history. So once you have uh, been with the rishis of the Upanishads, once you have uh, read, let's say, uh, uh, you know, uh, Discovery of India by Nehru, once you have gone through the works of Vivekananda, you don't just want to uh, go and meet uh, any general person around you and accept him as your teacher. My, my benchmarks had uh, just uh, been pegged very high, maybe just by way of coincidence. But I had in front of me teachers and uh, ideals such as uh, Kabir Sahib, Adi Shankaracharya, so, I didn't quite uh, feel the need. I'm propelled to get suddenly in the present scenario and because it is connected to what you're saying. So, when you, I also see that there are courses online. Do you believe that for any spiritual seeker, for a transformation, the presence of Guru makes a difference? 
You see, you must have the drive within, first of all. That drive within is the first guru, or rather is the first act of the internal guru. And then that drive within will take you to the right place. And that right place need not be a person's uh, ashram or something. It could even be a library. Okay. Are you getting it? Yes. So, if I, if I run a few courses, that is for those who see that their drive and their urge would be best satisfied by and most efficiently satisfied by benefiting from those courses. Otherwise, it is not at all necessary that one must have uh, a person in front of uh, him. Even if one must have a person in front of him, it is not necessary that that person be a designated guru. I had my father and he de facto practically uh, you could say played the role of my guru. Additionally such vast literature has been uh, left for us by the wise ones, by the thinkers. Hmm? by the ones who cared for us, that we should first try to avail of it. And only then, if our curiosities are still not resolved, must we look for uh, something else here or there. That is why the people who come to me, if they are coming to me without giving themselves the right kind of literary exposure, I first ask them to read. Hmm? Reading is a very important uh, component uh, of the practices at my end. I say, first of all, you read, because that body of knowledge is already and readily available. If you are not uh, availing that, then it is sheer laziness and also shows the weakness of urge. And then if you still want to ask something, then you may come over and we can discuss. Uh, question here, one more clarity I need, uh, where we believe in Sanatan Dharma, that Guru helps the seeker to, on every step, guide, because there are chances the journey is arduous. And there are chances that we topple on the other side, sometimes make mistakes. So that presence is necessary, is what I understood from other teachers also. So I want to understand on those lines, is there any clarity or what is your thought on that? Sanatan Dharma realizes two fundamental entities. Hmm? When you say Sanatan Dharma, you mean the Vedic Dharma. Right? The golden peaks of the Vedas are the Upanishads. Right? They realize only two entities. Hmm? 
द मन एंड द आत्मा वॉट इज मन मन इज ऑल द फील्ड अराउंड अहम आई दिस फील्ड कंसिस्ट ऑफ वंस परसेप्शन ऑफ द सेल्फ विच इज द बॉडी एंड द एंटायर वर्ल्ड ओके ऑल दैट कम्स विद इन द मन माइंड एट द सेंटर ऑफ दैट सिट्स द अहम आई सेंस द आई ईगो सेंस एंड द फाउंडेशन ऑफ ऑल दिस बिजनेस इज कॉल्ड द आत्मा so there are only these two atma which is the truth the reality that neither begins nor ends and then there is the i mind world business which are all one hmm? i mind world which are all one right so now who is the guru who is the guru do you want to look for a guru within the i mind world system or is the atma the guru this has to be realized okay the atma is the first and the most important guru the truth itself is the guru so while it is very true that one does necessarily need a guru but that does not mean that the guru necessarily needs to be in a physical form and even if the guru needs to be in a physical form it is not necessary that the guru must be a person a human being hmm? for example in the advaitic literature itself if you go to the avdhut gita there dattatreya talks about the 24 gurus of the avdhut and the avdhut is learning from a bird from a fish you know from a fisherman and from all kinds of appearances around him now why is he able to learn from everybody around him because first of all he has an urge to learn the urge to learn is the blessing of the inner guru Are you getting it? When that blessing is there, then a physical guru also emerges from somewhere. Whereas, if that urge is not there, and you still keep sitting at the feet of some celebrated guru, it hardly helps you, as you see evident in the case of millions. Hmm? There are so many gurus, and there are millions of followers. Frankly. not many of them really progress in any sense i'm talking of the followers it is because one has to first of all rely on himself the first reliance has to be on oneself and when that reliance is there then you also come to see what are the appropriate sources for you in the external manifested world that can be of help to you there you could have any number of sources and any number means zero or one or 25000 are you getting it all possibilities are there and 
all of those possibilities hold good and true any of those possibilities might be beneficial to a given person but what is essential is that first of all one has to have the drive to realize the drive to realize and one has to do the utter maximum that one can do on his own and it is not as if i'm saying that you do the utter max that you can do on your own and then you come to a guru and then the guru does it for you no you have to continue doing the utter maximum that you can do for yourself and if you are doing that then in between you will keep receiving guidance from the external world as well so what remains continuous is your self inquiry that remains continuous and if you are really sincere in inquiring then in between episodically you will also have external events which might be in the form of appearance of external persons which will assist you along your internal journey but in the internal journey if you rely solely on an external being then you are not being responsible towards yourself so uh, that makes me ask another question i now understand that your inclination towards gyan yoga as we were talking so the, i was asked, i wanted to know about among the four paths of yoga the bhakti karma gyan and raja which is more relevant from for today's time from your perspective see first of all i do not take these as fundamentally different all the four paths of yoga if you look at the bhagavad gita the 18 chapters are all in a sense different paths of yoga hmm? the speaker is the same the listener is the same and the objective is the same hmm and to the same listener all the different paths of yoga are being mentioned sankhya yoga is being instructed to arjun and arjun is being instructed in bhakti yoga as well vibhuti yoga as well kshetra kshetra ke vibhag yoga as well now you must ask what is it that krishna wants arjun to learn which particular yoga all because they are not fundamentally different and unless one sees the underlying unity of all paths one will remain confined and conditioned to a particular path there can be no gyan without bhakti please and there can be no bhakti without gyan gyan without bhakti is sheer egoism and bhakti without gyan is blind superstition so they all to me are, are one hmm? maybe one can start from a particular point but if one is sincere then he would soon discover the their their interoperability their in separation their indifferentiation hmm? their essential unity that would become obvious what is it that is relevant in today's times 
be it uh, this age or any particular age, any time, one has to start with self-observation. One has to first of all know his condition. If you want to travel, there are three things that you must know. Where you stand, first of all, your destination and the path you want to take. These three things. Hmm? And then there is a fourth thing called the vehicle, which starts becoming clear then. Most of the times we do not know the two most important things. Where do we stand and where do we want to go? The first thing to be known is, where do I stand? Only when I clearly see that I stand at a point of tension, confusion, inner conflict, jealousy, hatred, lovelessness, then I realize that I want to reach a point where I would be free of all these things. Right? So the first point decides the second point. How do I know the destination if I do not know where I am? If I do not realize that I am sick, how can I ask for health? So first of all, there has to be self-observation. And that self-observation leads to an urge to be free of bondages. Once these two are there, then you also know by the definition of your condition, what path you can take, because that has to be a practical thing, you see. Hmm? Having observed myself, if I see that such and such is my inner configuration, and such and such are my external conditions, then I can obviously infer what kind of route would be best for me. Hmm? And then the vehicle also shows up. One has to leave a bit for the grace to do. Sadly, in the whole process, commonly people just do not begin with self-observation. They begin with uh, an imagined picture of divinity. They say, oh, there is something called great spiritual peace that we want to attain. Now, why do you want to attain peace if you first of all do not see that you are tense and, and surrounded and chaotic within. Yes. Hmm? So, uh, one has to start from his own actual state, right? And then everything else will become clear. So, the next question would be, how important is chanting the name of Lord? Any specific mantra you teach your students or you recommend people to do at home? Because many of my readers are from housewife and male in the advanced age. The mind loves gossip, does it not? The mind is continuously chanting some name or the other. Hmm? Is the mind ever silent? No. So the mind is always reciting and repeating some word or the other because words are all that the mind can have. Hmm? The mind cannot have the truth. The mind cannot really contain peace within itself. 
but it can have lots of images, symbols. So words are symbols. And mind has a great affinity for words. So the mind is always full of words. Words represent the world. So the mind cannot, for example, uh, contain bread within itself because the mind is subtle. But it can contain B-R-E-A-D. The mind, for example, cannot uh, contain an entire person within itself because the person for the mind is the body and the body is gross and the mind is subtle. Hmm? So the mind would contain within itself the name of that person. The name of that person could be R-A-J-I-V, Rajiv. Now what is the mind doing? The mind is obsessed with the word Rajiv and the mind is continuously chanting that. So the mind is a prakritic chanter. Are you kidding me? Now you see why the Lord's name has been given to the devotees. The Lord actually can have no name. Hmm? The truth is Nirgun, Nirakar, how can it have a name? So when it is said, chant the name of the Lord, what is actually being said is, stop chanting all those names that you usually do. Stop chanting all those names. Or, when a name comes very forcefully to you, the name could say, a new air conditioner. The name could be Rajiv. Or the name could be anything that the media throws at you. All the names that occupy the mind, they are there. When a name comes to you, question it. Are you the name of the Lord and the Lord has no name? You tell that name. You see, I am supposed to recite only the name of the Lord. So I will not allow you to circulate in the mind. I will not allow you to occupy a position within myself. That is the real meaning of chanting the Lord's name. Chanting the Lord's name does not mean burdening the already burdened mind with one more name. Hmm? You already have a million names in your mind and those names are what makes life hell, right? Already the mind is so very loaded and then you bring in Vishnu Sahasranam and so many more names have been added to the already very long list. That is not the purpose. The purpose is to clip the list. The purpose is to get rid of the mental burden. Hmm? So that is the real meaning of chanting the Lord's name. It is in negativa. Chanting the Lord's name means get rid of all the names that are not the Lord's name. Get rid of all the names that are not the Lord's name. And the Lord has no name. Which means all the names that are there in your mind need not be there. Because the Lord can have no name. But this can be very difficult for any ordinary seeker too. But then you need to have that commitment. You know? And even if you find it difficult, at least you must realize that uh, the real thing indeed is difficult. Would you want the real thing and all the difficulty associated with it? Or because the real thing is difficult, you would settle for a fake thing? Of course not. Of course not. But 
like millions of people are doing chanting so i don't know what to tell them about this how are they going to <laughs> respond and react to it is it is something that needs to be told because a great device in the form of chanting or sumiran uh, jap has been rendered very useless by wrong application the device that was handed over to us by the wise ones was perfect and beautifully crafted so in those device you i just want to extend this uh, there are mantras mentioned some some mantras which we that time also used to recite like for example astoma sadgamaye and uh, uh, other mantras which everybody recites every day in the evening or morning so even they that are chanting in a way so that also has a relevance or not it has a great relevance but it has to be understood anything done by way of dead habit obviously cannot be useful hmm? anything is useful only when it arises organically from your understanding right now what is a mantra any and every verse of the bhagavad gita is a mantra any and every verse of the upanishad is a mantra any shlok or sakhi by the saint poets even in the language of the masses is a mantra hmm nanak sahib kabir sahib say something that is a mantra hmm and what is that something not something special anything that they have ever said all of that is a mantra which means there can be no single common mantra for everybody okay because the mind differs all that differs is mind hmm hmm because the mind differs therefore the mantra that would be useful to the mind at a particular stage at a particular time and place would also be specific to that time and place and situation which means you cannot have one mantra for an entire lifetime which means you cannot have one mantra for an entire community which means that one mantra that is useful to you in the afternoon would not be so effective by the evening by the evening you might require another mantra therefore the mantra must also be dynamic the truth cannot change but the mantra must change the truth is immovable unchangeable but the mind keeps fluctuating right the mind is never still the condition of the mind keeps changing according to time place situation everything right so that which will take the mind to the central unchangeable truth also must keep changing so when somebody comes to me and let's say demands a mantra first of all i would try and explain what mantra means and then i would say all this that i have spoken to you from all this pick up what you find most relevant and most useful for yourself and that is your mantra and that could be something very very simple something very simple as keep still keep still 
No, that is your mantra. That is your mantra. So I am still a little confused here. I want to put this in perspective. So when I am asking about the name of chanting the name of the Lord, so you are saying that there is first thing you have to not ah. chant anything, you become silent completely, no words, no, and then you are saying about. Yes, that mantras can be useful. So you see uh, a contradiction here, right? You see, there are two kinds of words. Hmm? There is a word that arises from the noisy mind and it furthers noise. And there is a word that arises from silence. The word that arises from silence is what we have called as the divine word. That is why we do not call the words of the holy books as uh, coming from mankind. We say that these words have descended from the skies. It is because there are certain words that do not come from the usual state of the mind. They come from a very, very silent mind. Therefore, they need not be called as man's words at all. So we say they are Brahmavakya. They come from somewhere else. In India, we have said that. Elsewhere also it has been said that these words are not man's words. Obviously, they, they came from the mouth of man, but they didn't come from the usual noisy mind of man. They came from a most centered and still mind. And when the mind is most centered and still, that is what is called as Atma or Truth. So those special words have a special ability. What is the ability that they have? They make the mind silent. They remove all the words that are circulating within the mind. And having removed all the words, they themselves disappear. They themselves disappear. Like a cleansing agent, you see, like soap. When you use the soap to wash a piece of cloth, all the dirt and the dust is carried away. But then after that, does the soap itself remain? No, the soap also goes away. The Upanishads put it very beautifully. They say the, the words of the Upanishads are like the logs of wood on the funeral pyre, on the chitta. You see, what is it that they do? They say they burn away all that which is dead inside you. And then in the process of burning all that which is dead inside you, the wood also gets burned away. So nothing remains. You are now absolutely cleaned and empty of everything. So these mantras are those kinds of words. But they cannot be made to coexist with our usual crowd of words within. So as I said that you cannot have the thousand words that occupy your mind and along with that side by side you have Vishnu Sahasranam. That makes no sense at all. So, so then to begin for a person on that journey to first quieten yourself and then take, then take up this? Quieten yourself, be very committed that only the right thing can stay in my mind and the right thing is not merely a sound. It has to be in the light of your understanding. So for example, when you have let's say a Sanskrit shlok as your mantra, 
let's say you are using it as your mantra you must very well know what the shloka is saying and you must be committed to abide in the spirit of the shloka so many times people have a mantra and they do not even feel fully realize what the mantra is saying it is not merely the sound or the dead process of repetition that is important it is understanding that is important you see truth is realization right the rishi said bodho aham who am i really understanding pragyanam brahm what is brahm understanding so without understanding what is the point in repetition so next question is india has always been the land for land of spirituality but the times we live in are very challenging how does one conduct oneself in these testing times to attain the bliss or liberation or centered oneself like that becomes quiet something you see times have always been challenging it's just that uh, today man has so much ammunition that he is bringing about carnage that is visible to the eyes otherwise the essential animal vrittis of man have always been there violence disquiet it is not that man has Uh, suddenly learned these things they were always there it's just that today by virtue of progress through time man has reached a point when he has um, a lot of knowledge available to him knowledge about the world you see and that knowledge has uh, manifested itself in uh, technology hmm? technology that has enabled man to live long that has greatly increased the number of people uh, living in this world but technology that has given just unlimited destructive power in man's hands so today we say that you know this is uh, the utter nadir of uh, the yugas we say this is kaliyug if uh, this is kaliyug then uh, it has been a very long kaliyug hmm? it's just that we are now seeing the results of what we have been since the last 5000 years at least the results are becoming evident now otherwise uh, we are not uh, uh, newly indoctrinated sinners we are very got it so this situation where we are already we have been like this now the situation is where everybody can glaringly see this happening now that's why the situation is more more tense and more stressful how does we conduct obviously if it is our doing then uh, we have to clean the mess we created it we'll have to clean it up in some sense it is good that now the results are very obviously evident hmm there is widespread extinction of species the climate catastrophe is upon us we are already 8 billion and then you know hundreds of species are disappearing every week 
let that sink in hundreds of species are disappearing every week even as we have been speaking maybe a dozen species have gone extinct so that is the kind of times we are living in you know of biodiversity loss you know of how close mankind is to to a nuclear war that can be precipitated any time nations keep blatantly threatening each other uh, with their nuclear arsenal all those things are happening and the number of uh, nations uh, with access to nuclear weaponry has been continuously increasing it used to be two then four and uh, now it's practically going to reach a dozen hmm? so anything can happen anytime it's obviously a very very bad situation and anybody can see that we have to realize that the root of all these external problems is man's mind so first of all we have to get rid of the notion that by having the right kind of legislation or or structures or systems or international treaties or agreements or social processes we can uh, just just sail out of these troubled waters that is not going to happen you have to address the problem where it really is and the problem really is here in man's mind man needs spiritual education man's animal ego needs to be educated it needs to be rather edified otherwise there is no hope at all so one method macro method if i take it is that spiritual knowledge to or spiritual education for yes, as many yes 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 it has to be a part of the school and college curriculum ha ah, this is something very interesting yes you see what else will the ego do the ego is born hungry and dissatisfied and chaotic that's how it is born look at the newborn baby do you find it meditative <laughs> huh it is shouting throwing about its limbs and it has no realization of who it is and it, it's always trying to get hold of something grope this grope that shout for this it's continuously crying it's attached to the body so that's who we are that's how we are we are born now if you do not educate the ego what will it do throughout its lifetime of let's say 80 years it will go outwards to seek satisfaction and how will it seek satisfaction through consumption and that sense of consumption is what is destroying the world today it is already very nearly totally destroyed it if you do not get contentment at the right place you will obviously seek satisfaction at all the wrong places how will you seek satisfaction by amassing wealth by consuming material by consuming another human being by trying to dominate another human being no through all these means what are you trying to do what is so much of all this human activity about it is just to please the ego right i am not okay i want to be okay so i'm doing something what am i doing i'm chasing a woman i'm chasing wealth i'm attacking another nation i'm becoming sectarian i'm proving my superiority i'm amassing more knowledge why am i doing all this 
because I feel hollow within. Something is not all right. So I'm trying to set it right by doing all these things. Another thing is, you do all these things all your life and yet the fundamental dissatisfaction does not go away. The result, you do more of those things with more misery for yourself and the world. Far better than that is to take the student within and point to the real source of dissatisfaction. Once he knows the real source of dissatisfaction, at least he will not foolishly run behind the world. Hmm? So spiritual education, to me, is the unavoidable solution. You have started something on those grounds? Obviously. At some school? Obviously, obviously. Since last uh, 13 years, uh, there has been a course called the Holistic Individual Development Program, which has been running in universities, colleges, schools. But you see, it is coming from a person, a private organization. So it can have only so much impact. I'm getting it. Hmm? Plus the ecosystem right now is not favorable. Schools and colleges are places where one is supposed to get jobs. Education has become just a means to earn livelihood. So when you want to introduce this kind of a thing in an educational institution, it is not quite easy. Yet we have been doing it and there has been at least partial success. And, uh, yeah, and we just concluded a three-day camp here in Mumbai. So uh, stuff is going on. There have been online uh, media through which we have been reaching out and the process of education is continuing but it needs to be a thousand maybe a million times more intense I get this so um, uh, what is Acharyaji what is the purpose of one's life straight away like people want to understand those who are on the path <laughs> there has to be some problem, only then there has to be a purpose, right? So the purpose depends on the problem. If there is no problem at all, would you want a purpose? I have come across some people who are happy and satisfied, like those people who, there are people who are running after money, but there are people who have already attained career success, money, family, everything. And then they still feel, feel something that they are missing. They also ask some questions like, what is the purpose of life? So, that's so if somebody is missing something, obviously the purpose of life for that person is to figure out what he is missing and obtain it. Yeah, that I understand. But that is so obvious. <laughs> the purpose of life is to come to a point where you can be purposeless. Because purpose and problem go together. We are problemed. We are troubled. So we must have a purpose and that is alright. If you are not feeling alright, then you must have a purpose. And what will that purpose be? Do something that makes you feel alright. But if you are really alright, then there is no need for a purpose. So ultimately you have to come to a point where there is no need for a purpose. 
ultimately that is the purpose huh? to come to purposelessness what must be the current purpose look at your life and figure out what is it that troubles you get rid of it that is the purpose so there is no long term purpose as such the purpose has to be right now the purpose has to be right now you are in a job that that is eating you out hmm? but you are still continuing it in it for the sake of some um, something that you may call as it your responsibility or your obligation or uh, your helplessness whatever if that is what is troubling you then then realize that peace is higher than any other obligation that you hold hmm and then the purpose must be to somehow get out of that job and that is the purpose for now once you are out of that job figure out if there is still something else that is troubling you get rid of that so the purpose has to be dynamic the purpose of life has to be very very dynamic varying from moment to moment depending on what troubles the moment is offering you and ultimately you must come to a place where there are no troubles left and then life is purposeless and so it's so beautiful this i i understand this as a micro level as individual question is asked and you are answering but what i mean i wanted to understand from as a macro level question from outside bigger picture there are many seekers who want to spiritually want to know what is the meaning of life what is the purpose of life then it could be just said in a very blanket way the purpose of life is liberation but liberation from what liberation from what liberation from all that which troubles you and what is it that troubles you your essential sense of self is what troubles you hmm so it is very easy to say that the purpose of life is liberation all right liberation but liberation from what liberation from oneself because we sustain our troubles if your office is what troubles you does your office come to your home and harass you there no you travel every day to your office to get harassed right so we sustain our troubles we willingly walk into our troubles so purpose of life is to be liberated from the obligation to remain troubled all the time okay it's i mean i understand that literally what what is being said but there are people who have responsibilities towards society families and all that so they have to go travel make that painful sustenance one has to first of all know what his real responsibility is because you see responsibility comes from the sense of who you are hmm most of the times what people call as their responsibility is something that has been just taught to them if you take them aside and ask them how do you know that you are responsible for such a thing they'll have no answer they'll say isn't it obvious you said no no it's not obvious explain to me and they'll not be able to explain because they do not know how can they explain everybody is carrying so many responsibilities towards others towards oneself i must be successful it's my responsibility towards myself i must have a great career it's my responsibility towards myself i must have a house hmm i i must be able to bring up my kids in that way how do you know that all this is your responsibility i repeat how do you know that you must do it and when you ask this the fellow usually goes silent because he has never bothered to inquire 
had our responsibilities been genuine then fulfilling those responsibilities would have been a source of great joy to us the very fact that our responsibilities are a burden to us proves that our responsibilities are false real responsibility is real delight if your responsibility does not give you delight that means you neither know yourself nor your responsibility responsibility can arise only from self knowledge you see if i know who i am then i will know what i must do and that which i must do is called my responsibility so i cannot be responsible unless i have self knowledge but people act very very responsible without having an iota of self knowledge uh, how is that happening sir i'll ask the next question uh this is about food habits like people on the uh, in our sanatan dharma also or many places i have heard that for people who are on the spiritual path or following a spiritual path or guru should eat generally vegetable uh, vegetarian food you what is your uh, perspective on this or what do you recommend on this you see man is the only creature who has a choice in food right isn't it obvious the lion has no choice the elephant has no choice the fish has no choice the bird has no choice the rabbit or the cow have no choice they will eat what they are prakritically you could call that nature i don't want to equate nature with prakriti but that's the uh, common equation so i'll i'll proceed with it what they are naturally designed to eat man is the only one who has a choice in everything you know prakriti didn't tell man to raise houses for himself but man raises houses prakriti didn't tell man to fly to the mars or to the moon but man flies to mars or the moon man has a choice man need not abide by prakriti hmm? all other animals all other creatures must live strictly by their prakritic code hmm? the moment it is close to sunset at the time of dusk what do you find the birds doing going back and just before twilight what do you hear the chirping of the birds start chirping huh so they live strictly by the prakritic code man he works all night hmm? the place where i am staying people have been shooting the entire night i suppose they find nights more conducive for having a shoot hmm? man man does what he does man is not man is not confined by the rules of prakriti except that he has to take birth and die but even in that he has a choice you see no other animal has a choice man can abort birth and man can delay death hmm? or man can bring about his death sooner than usual both things so even in food man has a choice yes you know what must man choose what must every choice take into account man is fundamentally restless is he not hmm yes so every choice must be in a way that it brings rest and peace to man are you getting it man must choose because man is the only being in the entire universe that is so restless animals are all right give them food give them their right habitat and they are all right they don't complain then man always keeps complaining right from his moment of birth till his moment of death man is an animal that complains 
करेक्ट सो मैन मस्ट चूज इन अ वे दैट ब्रिंग्स पीस टू हिम दैट इज इज मोस्ट फंडामेंटल रिक्वायरमेंट अकॉर्डिंगली ही मस्ट डिसाइड इज डाइट नाउ विल किलिंग एन एनिमल मेक यू मोर पीसफुल इफ इट डज गो एड एंड किल इट विल किलिंग एन एनिमल मेक यू मोर पीसफुल गो हेड एंड किल इट द थिंग इज यू आर ऑलरेडी ट्रबल्ड एंड वेन यू किल एन एनिमल लुक इन टू इट्स आईज यू आर क्रिएटिंग ट्रबल फॉर द एनिमल आर यू नॉट यू आर ऑलरेडी सफरिंग अ लॉट एंड नाउ यू आर मेकिंग द अदर क्रिएचर सफर इज दैट रिड्यूसिंग योर सफरिंग और कंपाउंडिंग योर सफरिंग सो इट इज नॉट इवन सो मच a matter of having pity or compassion for the animal the moment you kill an animal you have compounded your own suffering you must choose to eat in a way that relieves you of your inner turbulence and conundrums instead if you choose to eat flesh you are making life worse for you that is why the spiritual seeker cannot eat flesh if he is really seeking if he really wants to bring calmness to his consciousness how can he go about slaughtering consciousness do you understand this on one hand our consciousness is troubled on the other hand we are slaughtering the animal and the animal too is consciousness how can you do that hmm? some people argue that even when you eat plants aren't you slaughtering consciousness but that is the very minimum that this body requires you see you have a choice hmm? you have a choice and living on this earth everything is relative no choices can be absolute so living on this earth eating a leaf or a fruit is the minimum that you require for physical survival to the extent physical survival is needed so that is something that you will have to do hmm? but even in that the best way to live be would be to live not through a farm but to live through an orchard you know fruits and leaves when you when you live on fruits and leaves and there can be abundant diversity in that then you don't really have to kill a tree the present mode of feeding populations is through agriculture and agriculture is quite violent not as violent as meat consumption but still there is a lot of blood involved in agriculture as well you getting it so when people say blood involved in agriculture i didn't understand you see you cannot raise crops without first clearing fields you know for people to eat first of all forests must be cleared away and when you clear away a forest you have made so many species to go extinct you won't even realize that your simple potato or chapati is soaked in blood but it is hmm? obviously that is nothing in comparison to the violence that happens when you eat meat but what i'm saying is in response to the argument that even vegetable consumption involves a certain level of violence i agree to that even a vegetarian diet involves a certain level of violence but then that is the very basic minimum violence that you have to do because you carry a body even that is bad that to maintain this body you have to kill a plant even that is bad why do you want to make it worse by slaughtering an animal 
and if you are saying that it does not matter whom you slaughter then why stop at animals go ahead and slaughter a human being the question is why don't we eat human beings we don't human eat human beings because they carry a certain consciousness by the same logic you should not kill animals and if you say that consciousness does not matter then go ahead and eat human beings as well but even the most prolific meat eater does not eat human beings so just as you can spare human beings please try sparing animals as well hmm and try sparing plants as well try eating in a way that involves minimum destruction of plant life yes if mankind evolves you see if we really become a spiritual people then the future is not farms i say but orchards we will learn to live through orchards we will have trees hmm? the evolution of man today we have come to a point where where you know where even using your mobile phone is causing climate change do you know that please please figure that out using social media using mobile phone is in itself a contributor to climate change so you have had the internet before that you have had the industrial revolution hmm and industrial revolution we know how much the mills and factories have uh, emitted uh, carbon and other gases into the environment before that we have had agriculture and agriculture itself is a great contributor to climate change agriculture the harmless looking agriculture the innocuous plant diet is itself a contributor to climate change hmm? obviously i say that it is not even a tenth in comparison to a meat based diet but even then it does have some blood on its hands you'll have to therefore go beyond agriculture not only will you have to uh, change the other external aspects of living if you really are sincere about uh, living in the most spiritual most peaceful most fulfilling way possible then you will have to uh, revisit the the glorious image we have of farms and fields we think of farms and fields as almost holy places they are not man's decline took a great step ahead the day he turned a farmer hmm? so it is not that the farm is a great place and we we we, we love to say you were saying because he had to cut lot of trees and extinct many species because of this yes that is one aspect and the other aspect is when man became a farmer he lost a lot of freedom the farm started ruling over man the farmer's life the agrarian life came with a lot of constraints in fact in the jungle there was not so much subjugation of women for example but when the village came about it resulted in a lot of subjugation of the woman not only that the free time that was available to man in the jungle 
was hardly available when he became a farmer. So we need to really collect and know the facts about agriculture as well. Though agriculture is not the topic of today's discussion. We have just strayed into it. But all these things have to be revisited. We have to look at the entirety of our living. Huh? And there need not be any holy cows. Whatsoever needs to be changed and reformed, must be changed and reformed, if we want to avoid the catastrophe that is impending. Uh, Acharyaji, please tell us about your teachings and spiritual practice uh, and uh, how you teach this your is, students. This is, this is how. This is how. This is how. Okay. One on one. No, not one on one. There might be a group. So there used to be a group here. People were sitting here. But it is quite didactic. You know? Okay. Any specific technique? The, the method is discussion. The method is dialectical. So people would ask something and then I respond and then usually there is a counter question. So it proceeds through this kind of engagement. Okay, and then you also accept students, disciples? Not formally, not formally. It's not that somebody is a student and somebody is not a student, somebody is formally enrolled and somebody is not formally enrolled. I, I rather like to be a companion. You could say a, a facilitator. So I say use me to the extent I'm useful to you. Okay? It's not that I'm a permanent guru or something. I do not quite fit in in the usual image of the guru, nor do I want to. So I'm okay being just a, just a facilitator. Just one or two questions last. One question is, uh, uh, how much do service and charity help in raising human consciousness? Uh, what do you think is the best form of service? First question is, how much do you do service and charity help in raising human consciousness? The ego wants to service itself. Hmm? That's the problem. Because it is always dissatisfied and hungry and angry. If it has to serve, it will serve itself. It takes care of its own interests. That is called selfishness. Hmm? In that context, service has to be seen. Service is when you are really able to see the futility of trying to please only yourself. And then you say, oh, this won't work. And then you become of use to others as well. Otherwise, even if you act in a way to help the others, you are only causing disservice. You see, in general, there are people who try to be good to others. Parents try to be good to their kids. Hmm? Friends try to be good to each other. Colleagues try to be good to each other. Spouses try to be good to each other. But then the world is like this. If people actually are good to each other, why is the world like this? Which means even when we ostensibly want to be good to the other, we only end up harming the other. Because the ego cannot be good to the other, even if it tries to be. The ego can be good to the other only when it sees its own limitations, gains some humility and gets rid of its, of its usual ways. That is real charity, that is real service. 
otherwise if you if you just uh, give out some money or, or dole something out or engage in yearly donations and all those things they just serve to beef up the ego so that also answers what is the best form of service because you explained very correctly that it has to first understand in terms of ego okay and so uh, what is true worship seeing one's own limitation how can you worship somebody if you consider yourself as the biggest of them all and that's what the ego does the ego does not consider itself secondary or smaller or inferior to anybody even if the ego professes an inferiority complex somewhere it still acts as the master it says i know i have an inferiority complex so the ego in its own eyes is the final authority what is worship how can you worship someone if you do not take that entity or power or whatever it is as bigger than you to worship first of all there has to be humility how can there be humility if you are egoistic because the ego cannot tolerate being second the ego has to be the first the ego is the principal authority in its own eyes the ego judges even the one it worships so you might become a student you might take somebody as the guru but you are the one who would decide whether the guru is worth it and you keep judging the guru as well so who is the real authority the guru or you of course you just as you choose a trouser or a t-shirt for yourself you also choose your guru so who is the authority the guru or you that's the thing with ego it has no humility even if it wants to be humble it wants to be humble according to its own values and thoughts and perceptions so there is there any way worship is possible then worship has to begin like anything else with self observation one has to see that one worships himself one has to see that one has been so very conceited that he has been worshiping nobody else but himself all his life even the most wretched person in the most uh, dilapidated of conditions is a self worshiper he says i with profound pride hmm? and he feels hurt when the i is hurt so everybody every single being is a worshiper of the little ego which thinks itself to be great hmm? so then what is real worship real worship is to stop worshiping yourself first of all if you keep worshiping yourself which god are you going to worship if you keep worshiping yourself then the slot is already occupied you cannot place two deities on the same podium or can you hmm the heart has a single central seat it can be occupied only by one entity unfortunately in our case it is the ego so first of all the ego has to be unseated first of all the usurper has to be dethroned hmm and then real worship naturally happens therefore real worship 
need not necessarily be an external act of prostrating or bowing down or pilgrimage or, or, or anything. Real worship is rather an act in negativa. It is not about doing something extra. It is not about going to a temple and bowing down your head. It is rather about not doing what you have been doing till now. And what have we been doing till now? Worshipping ourselves. Yes. So it is not about doing something extra. It is rather about stopping what we have been doing till now. That is worship. So I'm done with the questions because other questions have been answered by you in a different way with that. If you want to say something else, please. Those who will be going through this article, uh, might find a few or many of the things that have been discussed initially a bit unacceptable because uh, they look a bit polemical, they appear a bit contradictory to the usual notions. They really are not. If you, uh, if you will um, bother to go through the whole thing once again, maybe there will be uh, more clarity. Or if you still have very strong doubts, then maybe you can uh, go to the YouTube channel. There are 7,000 or so videos there. And every conceivable topic has been discussed there in uh, much detail. And that would help. Try not to dismiss this conversation instinctively. Because that is often the first instinct. Hmm? To, to just rubbish the whole thing away or to, or to dismiss it as um, false or whatever. Hmm? Give it some uh, consideration. It might be of use to you. That is my humble request.